Hi everyone, I'm Les. And I'm Ashley. And you're listening to Anthropotamus, where we explore some of your favorite anthropology topics. Hi everyone, welcome to the latest episode of Anthropotamus. Today we'll be discussing Four Lost Cities by Annalie Newitz. Um, Les, what do you have to say about this book? Well, I'll just start by saying I, I really liked it. Um, I learned some things about Pompeii that honestly I feel like I might... Well, I should have probably known. I, I should have known, but did not know. Same here. That is exactly what I was thinking when I was reading the Pompeii section. For those who don't know, before we continue on, Four Lost Cities is a, basically a book about four major archaeological sites, which were Pompeii, Chattahoyak, Angkor, and... Oh, shoot, what was the fourth one? It's in the U.S. Cahokia. And I might have said that wrong. Um, so, and uh, I really liked how she started off the book with lost cities in parentheses, right? Because we know these cities were never really lost. Um, people living in the, the regions knew before excavation that something had been there for many years. Uh, but we tend to think of, you know, colonized academia, lost cities, a city's lost until some Westerner comes along and finds it. So I appreciated the acknowledgement that these cities were not really lost. Yeah, it's a whole hero's narrative thing. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I am curious. So, of course, as usual, I waited till the very last minute to actually look up the author and find out who they were, because that's what I do. I do everything last minute. And I cannot find out what her undergraduate work was in, but she does have a PhD in, what was it? English and American Studies from Berkeley. So when I was reading this, I was thinking, man, this is a, a bit post-processual for me. I, You know, I, I tend to lean... I guess, processual with a little mix of post-processual, but it was a little bit too post-processual for me in some parts trying to, it's like she was trying to create this story to pull the reader in. But in reality, we don't have the archeological context to really go into that, that much depth or details of people's everyday lives. And I felt like she did it more so in the Chitalhuyuk section. But then seeing that her PhD is in English and American studies and she's a journalist and not an anthropologist, it did make more sense. She was just really trying to create a story to attract readers, at least I'm assuming. Yeah, I mean, that that does make sense. She was writing from the perspective of journalism, which is definitely focusing on something more attention-getting. Um, I must say, though, I mean, Pompeii. Pompeii was probably my favorite section. You know what? We always have this image of Pompeii being very westernized society, but we don't stop to think about its location and its influence from Africa. Um, and the, I, I mean, I just, it's just never, the cultural diversity within Pompeii, it never phased me. It's, but it's also something I never really looked into before or studied. When I was growing up, I remember learning about it in like third or fourth grade and all of these different um, 
Greek influences or Roman influences were, were thrown in there. And then it was pretty much time for the next unit. So, you know, it weren't really told anything other than Pompeii was a city that was destroyed by a volcano. Yeah, exactly. And you just get this image of these people in robes. In robes. And last night when I was trying to finish up the book, it, and this is something I never thought about. I do not study plants, right? I'm a bioanth person. And she quickly mentions, and I kind of wish she went into a little bit more depth than this, is how in Cahokia, they had been cultivating certain plants. The lost crops. The lost crops. There you go. That's the term I was looking for. I, okay, for those who don't know, like me, lost crops are crops that had once been cultivated and then gone wild again. I, I didn't even know that was a thing. It was not something I ever thought about. I can't say that I knew about it either. Um, It makes sense. Mm -hmm. I'll say that. Like, as long as we've been around and practicing agriculture with civilizations rising and falling, I mean, why wouldn't there be lost crops? I think I'm curious more, so why would you stop cultivating those crops? Like, would, did it take too much water and you're just like, forget it, we're going to focus on this other crop instead, you know? I think that may be part of it, but I also think that, you know, they were talking about how the cities may have been intended to be temporary in the first place. Uh, as large as they were, the landscape, the climate, and everything was changing with rivers shifting from one area to another. You never know if your fields that you use for crops may turn into a floodplain from one year to the next. And then, you know, who knows, maybe when they moved on, they didn't have the same resources in the uh, new city, or maybe it was just a younger generation who actually moved on. They didn't know the uh, secrets to growing those crops. Maybe they just never took it with them. Mm, Maybe it tasted bad like kale and they're like, forget this. Honestly, kale could be a lost crop. Kale can be a lost. I don't care how healthy kale is. It is gross. I feel the same about spinach. I'm okay with spinach. Spinach tastes like dirt. Like, just wet dirt. (laughs) I just pass on that one. (laughs) (laughs) It's high in iron. (laughs) Yeah, well, if you blend it and put it in the smoothie and I don't have to taste it, we're good. Maybe throw it on a pizza. I'll eat it. But... Uh, it uh, it tastes like wet dirt. Something that I also kind of liked was, right, my my thesis is focused on the Levant, but I mostly, when I go and search articles, I'm mostly focusing on articles related to, like, human development, skeletal structure, whatever, nutrition. So in here, she puts it in a more kind of, I don't want to say cultural. I guess it's more archaeological, cultural uh stance on it which gives more of a narrative of what life would have been kind of like um so i did like thinking of chatahuyak in a in a different way but this idea of oh i remember this what i want also want to say okay so this idea of privacy right is kind of a new thing um and yet there's privacy because now there's wall these wall people are creating these their own areas and there's walls between them but at the same time it's not completely private because you have these holes people from on their roofs that they're walking down so i guess anybody could come along and walk down your roof so this had so reading this section it's talking about 
humans living among animals. And we see that humans go from living among animals and being a part of the environment to being above animals and um, kind of domesticating them and no longer seeing themselves as a part of the environment, but as being in control of the environment, right? <clears throat> and it reminded me of this short clip I had seen with um, Morgan Freeman and his show, The Story of God, where he takes a, you know, it's like a few minutes clip of him in Chattahoyak. And he's like, is there ever, is there evidence that these people believed in God? There really wasn't, right? This is before, you know, the Abrahamic faith really became established. Um, but this idea of being above the animals and being in charge of the earth, um, it really kind of reminded me of Genesis when man is put on earth and, and to oversee it. Um, so no, we don't see God here as, as we like to think of it in the Abrahamic face, but we are seeing that this new perception of their environment and how they're no longer like a part of it, but above it. So that was really much more in depth than I thought it was going to be. But <laughs> no, I like that part too. It, really brought um the way we view animals and ourselves into into perspective mm -hmm. and uh, the idea that um people once upon a time were basically just living among animals the, the world was what it was there's no separation and whatnot um it actually you know it and honestly, it didn't really say this in the book as far as I remember, but it seems like that's a really sharp view into the hubris of modern time uh, versus their time because where they are separate from the animal world and they're bringing these animals into their homes and even embedding parts of them in the walls uh, after feasts and things like that. Right, there and those paintings and what was that? I was just saying they're they're really taking control of how the the animals' environment and when they get to breed and when they get to eat, and even changing right their genetic makeup by determining which traits they prefer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, they're just getting into that phase. Well, I say phase. They're going. They're just getting into that transitioning into that um, that role of humanity, uh, learning how that works and making the world work for them. You know, it's kind of the first life hack. <laughs> uh, whereas if you if you look in people's homes now, you can still see that a lot of people identify with animals and we see aspects uh, of these things and we idealize them and use them to uh, paint a picture of ourselves in a way but I, I would I would wager that almost any person that you walk out and talk to will say that yeah people are people are different we are better than animals whereas I feel that I felt like 
some of what they talked about in this book was kind of showing shedding a light on the fact that they viewed animals more as equals even though they were learning these practices <clears throat> so if that makes sense yeah so well, out of these uh, out of these four cities i think chatahoyak and angkor were the two i was already familiar with chatahoyak more, more so than angkor but Honestly, the Angkor section was probably my least favorite section. Basically, okay, so my initial introduction to Angkor was, you know, my daughter, I homeschool, my daughter has Curiosity Chronicles, which, which introduces different cultures from around the world and early civilization and then our social studies. And according to her social studies, they give a base, basic uh, introduction to the fall of Angkor, which was... Uh, Overpopulation put stress on the land and the irrigation systems, and they basically effed up the land and couldn't keep up with the population demand. Um, and basically, the like deforest deforestation from the agriculture. And anyways, basically, one article I had read was they couldn't keep up with the repairs the during the droughts. Another article I had read had said they had the elites had already started get, by the time the droughts had started the elites had already given up on trying to repair the water system therefore the systems couldn't keep up not because the engineers didn't have the know-how but because the elites were like screw it we're not going to keep up with this system anymore we're already starting to move out of the city anyways so but she mentioned in the book the orientation in which they built their water system was had something to do with the symbolism of Hinduism and not necessarily the best way that it could have been built, which was the first time I had heard that. And I thought that was interesting. How are you going to create this water system that's supposed to support such a large population just to just because of your religious beliefs. I guess I guess it makes sense why people would do that, but at the same time, it's like, dude, you have this huge population. You should be doing what's best for the population. Well, yeah. I mean, from a modern perspective, yeah, absolutely. You should definitely do what's best for the population that you have. But from the viewpoint of, well, somebody from a different time, I, honestly, I don't know how they thought. I don't know what the uh, religion was like at that point in time or at this point in time for that matter um, I only know just a little bit about Buddhism I think it just comes down to what's more important to those people in power and what information do they have mm -hmm. yeah you've got a huge uh, population there but how big was it when they started to build were they expecting to have so many people and if so how knowledgeable were they on the requirements that they uh the requirements for that population i mean it was a pretty big civilization but it doesn't necessarily mean that they would have um had skilled city planners or anybody for that matter who had ever dealt with a civilization on that scale before I mean, a lot of the towns in the United States started out as just, a lot of cities in the United States started out as small towns that grew and grew and grew, and the infrastructure that we built initially 
It wasn't compatible with uh, with later setups. Just look at most downtowns versus the uh, rest of the city and how um, as they spread out from that downtown area they become more uniform, straighter lines, uh, stop conforming so much to the landscape and whatnot. I just think it comes down to technology, knowledge, and uh, spiritual importance maybe. I thought it was interesting. Uh, I forget which city it was. Maybe you can remind me. But um, I thought it was interesting when they were talking about how society stays together because of a unifying culture, which does make sense. But how do you create that unifying culture? Uh, and the answer that they brought to the table was art. Right? What makes you feel like you're a part of the group? Right, so the the whole idea of these are my people turned into this is my city. Which makes sense, all right, because you go from this small hunter-gatherer society into this city, how do you keep your connections? Yeah, so absolutely. You don't feel alone. I mean, Sacramento's my city. Right? It, yeah. I, I, I grew up here. Um, I've lived all over Sacramento and I've walked the streets for 29 well maybe not 29 years but you know what I mean uh, my entire life here so I do feel like there's a very strong sense of identification with this place for me like no matter where I go I will always be from Sacramento um, and when I look back at my family tree I the furthest back I, I actually know the names of people is maybe two three generations Hmm. I, I'm, I've done extensive research on you know one side of my family so I know that I share the name of four people right so I'm Leslie Dean Teams the third there were two other Leslie Dean Teams before me and there was one Leslie Teams before them his middle name was not Dean so that's the furthest back I've go, uh, I can go and I haven't met um, I've only met uh, one other Right, so I never met my grandfather, never met the great grandfather on that side. So my point is, like, I don't really know the people that I came from very well at all. Right, I know maybe mo I think it's true for most people. Mo they, we don't know more than two, like if we're very very lucky, three generations back, um, and the names get forgotten. Whereas mm -hmm. before we had these cities to identify with or before we had these large-scale societies to identify with your identity was directly attached to those people that you came from and you might have memorized a list of 10 15 people mm -hmm. right? and i don't i don't really know but um it's just uh it's just an interesting concept i thought it was pretty cool <sighs> i i guess we can't go on we can't finish this up without mentioning Pompeii and all the penises everywhere. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean we Why? opened with we opened with Pompeii. We're gonna um, end with Pompeii, like I don't. Why are why are people? And I, I'm sure this is more men than women. So fascinated with penises and have to have them everywhere. <laughs> but honestly, I would. I and I'm sure somebody has done research on this. But I would love to. Yeah, I'd love to find uh, an article uh, discussing the obsession over phallic symbols 
over history. Because I mean, I just think even even today, right? There's that one kid in class who has a binder where he's drawing penises for some reason. Like, what is this obsession with them? Uh, I mean, we have Christmas trees. That's supposed to be a phallic symbol, right? Um, you know, I never thought of it as one. I I never did. Uh, I never. Ha- it's I'm, a tree. I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that it's supposed to represent a phallic symbol. I know. I'd have to go back. That I could be totally wrong about that. Or the article I read could have been totally wrong about that. I'd have to go back and look that up. But it's like, I feel like that's a bit of a reacher. Not necessarily if we're talking about pagan societies. I mean, a lot of you could be entirely right about that. It, the pre-Christian society, yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, even Christian society. Come on. (laughs) Well, yeah, you know. I mean, they're just they're just more more ashamed of it. Yeah, right. But there's all throughout history. It's like this obsession with it and i it's like why it's all about breasts and penises that that's just it right there that's what um that's what people cared about that's what they drew (laughs) on their walls (laughs) that's what they drew on their walls uh well les do you have anything else to say about the book I mean, I think that encapsulated it pretty well. We opened up with, I learned some things about Pompeii and ended with some things about Pompeii. I I, I feel like that's just a perfect way to encapsulate this uh, book. Um, Only thing I want to say about it is I was um, just enraptured by by a lot of the book. More so by Chattahuyuk and... uh, Pompeii than the other cities but uh, at the same time it was just uh, it was just an interesting book very very attention getting uh, I feel like this is a book you're gonna you're gonna want to buy like if you're flying you have a long flight you see the book in the souvenir shop to read on the plane this is like the book to get <laughs> to read I on the this is, flight I think this is the perfect book club book yeah because you, you've got a couple of you get a bunch of people in the room you get some mimosas maybe you know something like that and just just talk about it and just have fun talking about um how ridiculous ridiculous we are as people and just <laughs> learning the different things that you know we're not that different from from the people who came before us and they weren't that different from the people who came before them we're all and, rooted together you yeah know, culture it, changes and develops into new cultures and influences one another. And no matter whether your your favorite thing is, you know, Korean dramas <laughs> or fishing or painting penises on the wall, <laughs> <laughs> we're all basically the same. We're all connected. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, once again, the name of this book was Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age by Anna Lee Newitz. And thank you again for joining us on our show. Thank you all for listening. Distribution of Anthropotamus is in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Please continue to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Anthropotamus for our latest episodes, show notes, and book discussion schedule.